Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. Over the past three decades, ethnic conflicts such as post-communist Yugoslavia, post-Saddam Iraq, Syria, Libya, and more recently Ukraine in Eastern Europe have left a profound and lasting effect on regional geopolitics. This is true not only in the societies affected by the conflict, but has indirectly created ripple effects in other societies involved with similar resolutions and ongoing conflicts. In particular, war zones since the early 2000s have challenged the core principles of modern journalism and prompted a re-examination of the role of war journalism during outbreaks of violent conflict. In recent years, the esteemed values within journalism, such as objectivity and detachment, which aim to create a balanced coverage of victims and aggressors alike, have been downgraded by many commentators from the journalism industry and academic circles. In light of events such as the NATO bombing campaigns of Serbia in 1999 and that of Libya in 2011, Indeed, in 1999, veteran BBC war correspondent Martin Bell created controversy in the journalistic world when he renounced the ideal of objectivity and proposed a counter-thesis called journalism of attachment or engaged journalism, which is a loosely defined term referring to efforts to increase the interaction between journalists and the audiences they hope to reach. To what extent then has war journalism changed since the end of the Cold War period? After the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, there was grand talk of a new world order, offering the promise of international justice and peace. However, the, the Balkan Wars of the 1990s gave rise to a new concept of global wars, which in the wake of the 9-11 events have acquired an unparalleled level of significance in world affairs. Also, the first Gulf War of the early 1990s was the commercial breakthrough for 24-7 news channels, creating what became known as the CNN effect. And this refers to a theory that the continuous coverage of news events on major TV networks can mold public perception, which in turn affects policymakers' agendas. And this concept originated from past American military interventions, which were conducted in real time, such as Iraq 1991, Somalia 1992 and Bosnia 1995. These interventions were widely portrayed as an ethical response from governments to the media coverage of humanitarian suffering. A notable coverage included scenes of, for instance, refugees fleeing from Saddam Hussein's forces during the first Gulf War, the armed conflict in Bosnia and Herzegovina between 1992 and 95 the Syrian civil war which followed the Arab Spring events of 2011 and 2012. And by playing non-stop dramatic and shocking images over media channels, the media essentially agitated public opinion, which in turn prompted policymakers to launch a military response, usually in the form of air offensives. 
Similarly, during the second Gulf War in Iraq 2003, the internet witnessed a new breakthrough in war journalism, spawning a new generation of war bloggers. So how has the new world order marked by collaborative warfare in conjunction with new media platforms impacted the tradition of war journalism? Are there signs of a new form of war journalism? And if so, when did this trend emerge? It's useful to point out that wars are not only fought using military hardware. In addition to fighting at land, sea and air, a simultaneous media war is also fought over public opinion and the control of civic populations. The media also becomes a battleground and journalists are drawn into the conflict either voluntarily or through the orders of their respective organizations. The fact remains though that warfare has a long history of requiring public support and great effort is made to get the public on board and hopefully accept the actions of their own state in a given conflict. Furthermore, the media and journalists have gained a commanding position due to developments in media technology such as breaking news formats, 24-7 broadcasting and live streaming events, allowing national TV channels to mobilize rapidly from regional centers and therefore report live from a combat zone. The visual media's unique power of influence also makes them more likely to deploy propaganda techniques during military conflicts and as such, Warring parties resort to even greater efforts to influence, steer and control the distribution of visual images and journalism reporting at an international level. For the mass media, war by its very nature has always been highly newsworthy. Depictions of a war's outcome, its victories and defeats are very dramatic and affect the fate of people across the globe. War news attracts large audiences and often engages people very deeply at an emotional and intellectual level. Public opinion is mobilized on an unparalleled scale, even in established democracies. Stories about armed conflicts, feuds, campaigns, great battles, glorified victories and crushing defeats have for millennia made up a considerable portion of popular culture. It is an integral part of our cultural inheritance and from childhood we have become accustomed to sharing the hardships and successes of heroes in various parts of our imagination. One can view war propaganda as a continuation of these stories and by appealing to established narratives about the simplified struggle between good and evil, we are often persuaded to take a stand in the conflict. The outcome of the struggle for our sympathies depends on which particular form of propaganda strategy grabs our attention and emotional engagement, i.e. how we as an audience identify with the different parties in the conflict. In the battlefield of war propaganda, the contest is often fought over the construction of national identity, which then dominates the conflict at hand. And the author, Michael Billig, referred to this as banal nationalism in his book of the same name, published in 1995, referring to the everyday, less visible concepts of nationalism, which are neither exotic or remote, but seem positively tame when compared to the more extreme versions of nationalism. For instance, with whom does the public feel sympathy for and extend its empathy? Which side does it trust and wish to support? Which leaders arouse public repudiation and contempt? Which victims awaken compassion while the suffering of others are passed over in silence? 
and also what we, the collective community, represented by war journalists, stand for in the war. Who exactly is we and how is this version of we positioned within the conflict? And so it is these aspects of social and national identity which I will be addressing throughout the remainder of this episode by focusing on two key aspects of conflict coverage by news media. The use of propaganda in war journalism and a more recent concept called embedded journalism. Embedded journalism refers to news reporters being attached to military units involved in armed conflicts and first came to be used in the media coverage of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So let's begin by asking, how does propaganda fit into the picture with war journalism? Since the early 20th century, war journalism has often engaged in a form of politics of national identity with special emphasis being placed on propaganda techniques, which employ visual storytelling as a key element of news reporting. And these techniques have transcended the new millennium and have succeeded in completely dominating war journalism and other forms of journalism, but often with much more serious and controversial implications. Although the very existence of propaganda in liberal democratic states is frequently denied, it continues to play a central role in relation to war and conflict. Propaganda is usually employed in a non-consensual manner to influence beliefs and behavior. Using a variety of manipulative techniques, including deception through lying, omission and distortion, as well as incentivization and coercion, at various levels of society, there is a very poor understanding of the role of propaganda within democracies. From the public's viewpoint, the notion that free citizens are being manipulated by powerful actors is sometimes treated as absurd or overly simplistic. Indeed, across elite groups in society, which includes politicians, academics, and those journalists who work for the corporate media, the idea that propaganda is a central feature of democratic society is usually met with outrage. That's because many people who are part of any elite political structure believe that they are always free from the influences of propaganda. They are uniquely positioned to understand what is true and what is false in the world around them. Propaganda might be something that the extreme right or the extreme left partake in, or it might be a problem with respect to foreign interference, such as the claims regarding alleged Russian meddling in Western politics. But it is not a problem vis-a-vis -vis mainstream media and political discourse. So let's start our analysis with a definition of propaganda. In the 2018 publication, the Oxford Handbook of Lying, under an article entitled Lying and Deception in Politics, Piers Robinson et al. used the following definition of propaganda. It involves, quote, organized attempts to promote particular agendas through a complex array of communicative techniques, which are principally manipulative in nature and involve various forms of deception, as well as incentivization and coercion. But when applied to armed conflict, war propaganda is considered to be central to the operations of contemporary liberal democracies. And it is presented across various platforms, including government, media, academia, think tanks, NGOs, and popular culture. And one good example of the effective use of propaganda techniques from recent history is the myth of clinical warfare, 
which emerged during the 1990-91 Gulf War following Iraq's occupation of Kuwait in August 1990. And together with the 2003 Iraq War, it represented the largest armed conflict following the end of the Cold War period. It also gathered a vast array of journalists, totaling around 1,200 to 1,300 correspondents on site in Saudi Arabia. Among the most spectacular features of the media reporting was television footage of coalition cruise missiles flying in over the Iraqi capital, tracer ammunition streaking against the night sky, wailing sirens and airstrikes from aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf, all being aired on TV channels across the world. This captivating array of visual material conveyed an image of a clinical war being fought by coalition forces with so-called smart bombs, which claimed to have surgical precision and were able to minimize civilian casualties. The aim of the clinical war was largely the work of the coalition's highly developed propaganda machine. It was perfectly adapted to pursuing a PR strategy of portraying the coalition's war-fighting effort as civilized due to its high-tech nature, unlike that of the opposition. At the press conferences held at the Hyatt Regency Riyadh, where most of the war correspondents were staying, Commander Norman Schwarzkopf and his public affairs officers made a conscious effort to spread the image of a high-tech war. With the absence of innocent victims, they continuously screened video sequences that substantiated this image before the gathered world press. There was a striking contrast between how different Western media portrayed civilian victims in the news from the Gulf War. The clinical war image hid the casualties on the Iraqi side, but when Iraq attacked Israel with Scud missiles, the media reports closely documented the horror and suffering in highly exposed articles and newscasts. Indeed, the number of deaths and injuries from Israeli losses were far less than those of Iraqi forces. Therefore, there was a clear attempt to disguise the suffering in the first case, while in the second case, the victim's agony was depicted close up, making it almost impossible for the audience to distance itself emotionally. During the first Gulf War, however, the media did not succeed in depicting the true face of war because the ideas conveyed by the clinical war were predominantly misleading. Indeed, the USA, the leading superpower in the then coalition, has consistently refused to provide any figures at all on the number of Iraqis killed or wounded during the overall military operation. Available estimates diverge greatly, but it's not unreasonable to assume that the civilian victims on the Iraqi side numbered in the tens of thousands during the period of the conflict itself. If one also includes victims of the destruction of infrastructure and economic sanctions, the number of dead civilians amounts to between 111,000 and 500,000, according to a report entitled The Human Costs of the Gulf War, published in 2005 by medical organization International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Overall, the media, either consciously or unconsciously, were completely deceived in their reporting of the first Gulf War. In reality, it never was a clinical war, but instead claimed large numbers of Iraqi civilian victims. These Iraqis were the so-called lesser victims of the conflict, with whom Western audiences never had the chance to identify. Their fate remained almost undocumented in the Western Hemisphere, and public opinion was never mobilized for their cause. Such patterns of deception, as evidenced by the clinical war myth, are well-known tactics employed by the media, 
and were first proposed by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky in their propaganda model, taken from their 1988 book, Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of Mass Media. The propaganda model is probably the most widely known critical theory of the media and is a useful next step in my discussion to understand the complexities involved in war journalism. In the propaganda model, Herman and Chomsky regard mainstream American media as consisting of a single propaganda system in which, quote, money and power are able to filter out the news which is fit to print, marginalize dissent and allow the government and dominant private interest to get their messages across to the public, end quote. And in their extensive studies of American media, human rights treatment and US foreign policy during the period of the Cold War, the authors found numerous examples of politically motivated double standards. Often human rights abuses committed by pro-US regimes were ignored, minimized or excused, while those perpetrated by pro-Russian or other enemy states were more likely to receive extensive and strongly negative treatment. The US press treated repressive US client states in Latin America and elsewhere as if they were autonomous allies of the US, whereas the responsibility for human rights violations in pro-Russian regimes such as Eastern Europe and elsewhere were laid squarely at the feet of the Soviet Union. People abused in enemy states were defined implicitly as worthy victims, their suffering treated in detail and sympathetically, while those in US client states were portrayed as unworthy victims. The worthy victims of war are those whose sufferings journalists take great pains to portray with personal portraits and individual life stories, close-ups of grieving relatives, wounded victims with faces twisted in agony and massacred corpses making up the repertoire of war correspondents when they choose to portray what has been called the true face of war. And in this way, the audience becomes psychologically and emotionally involved in the suffering of the civilian victims. Also, the term terrorism was invariably applied to the retail terror of left-wing insurgent groups and not to the wholesale official or clandestine violence of state-run organizations, except if they were hostile to the US. Furthermore, staged coercive elections held in militarized US client states in Latin America were portrayed as legitimate expressions of the popular will, whereas an election held under conditions of greater real freedom by Nicaragua's left-wing regime in 1984. This was framed as deficient and illegitimate. While Herman and Chomsky do not specifically use the term, their findings are nonetheless consistent with the characteristics of war journalism, in particular, the double standards depicted by the political elites that portray, quote, our side as moral and righteous and, quote, them as evil and aggressive. Despite the collapse of the Soviet bloc in 1991, marking the official end of the Cold War, Herman and Chomsky also found similar media subservience to a war-based elite perspective in the wake of the 9-11 events and the Bush administration's war on terror. Indeed, the propaganda model is highly suited to this role of problem solving and organizing complex data for extended periods during the Cold War period. And that's because it is an actual theory with a set of propositions about the media's governing logics and 
The model is designed to explain the nature of media coverage of important political topics. In its original version, Herman and Chomsky identified five institutional filters that tie the media to elite interests, and they are as follows. Firstly, the corporate arm of media, including the wealth, size and concentrated nature of media ownership. Second, media dependence on corporate advertising revenue. Third, media reliance on information from government, business and associated expert sources. Fourthly, right-wing flack in the form of sustained criticism and pressure from conservative media monitoring and policy institutes. And fifth, the ideological environment of anti-communism as a national religion. However, in the post-Cold War era, Herman has supplemented anti-communism with adherence to free market principles as an ideological filter. And in a later modification of the propaganda model, Herman dispenses with the ideological filter altogether by dividing the information stroke source filter into two components. Firstly, news shapers. These are experts mainly from a conservative background and newsmakers politicians and institutions capable of generating pseudo-events such as press conferences with the express purpose of being reported and to serve a specific political agenda. The propaganda model clearly emphasizes the mainstream media subordination to the interests of political and economic elites. However, the common thread throughout many of the persuasive communication techniques employed is that they involve a non-consensual process of persuasion. Essentially, people are persuaded to believe something or to act in a particular way, either through deception or because they have been incentivized or coerced. In short, their beliefs or actions are not freely chosen. Therefore, propaganda is primarily manipulative in nature and generally incompatible with any democratic requirements related to free debate and civic autonomy. Citizens who have been deceived, incentivized or coerced cannot in fairness be described as having formed their opinions freely. And the reason why contemporary elites and the public at large have insufficient awareness of quite how undemocratic their supposedly democratic political systems actually are is because Propaganda has been shrouded by a euphemism industry which has sought to relabel propaganda as public relations or PR or strategic communication, to name two of many examples. Indeed, the 20th century American theorist Edward Bernays recollected that, quote, propaganda got to be a bad word because of the Germans using it during the First World War, end quote. A euphemism industry has prevailed across Western democracy whereby terms such as public relations, strategic communication and perception management have been used to label activities that would otherwise have been referred to as propaganda. This rebranding exercise has been utilized to conceal the fact that democracies use propaganda on a mass scale. So now that we have explored the concept of propaganda and its relationship to the news media, in the following section I will introduce the second area of analysis on war journalism known as embedded journalism which has attracted much controversy by raising important questions on issues such as military propaganda, event objectivity and conflicted war correspondence. So let's begin by asking what is embedded journalism? 
Embedded journalism involves the practice of placing journalists under the patronage of one side's military forces during an armed conflict. Embedded reporters and photographers are attached to a specific military unit and receive official protection from the military. They are permitted to accompany troops into combat zones and given access to front lines of the battlefield. Embedded reporters thereby gain a level of access to the war front that they would otherwise be unable to attain safely on their own. Embedded journalism was introduced by the US Department of Defense during the Iraq War, which began in 2003. This was carried out as a strategic response to criticisms about the low level of access granted to reporters during the first Persian Gulf War and the early years of the Afghanistan War, which began in 2001. And in some respects, the privileged access created a standard of openness and immediacy in journalism, helping to appraise the public of military deployment in foreign wars. But there is a serious trade-off. From the media's perspective, there have always been questions about how a journalist who eats, sleeps and travels with the host military institutions can effectively cover a conflict. And to expand on this point and offer a better understanding of embedded journalism, I will now briefly compare a few examples from recent decades. So let's start with World War II, 1939 to 1945. World War II is often considered the most censored war in an era where Western war correspondents were essentially romanticized as war heroes, including CBS Evening News anchorman Walter Cronkite and historian William L. Shirer. While television did exist, it was scarcely known and news audiences would receive information mainly through the use of newspapers, radio and motion pictures. American war correspondents were required to wear military uniforms and received honorary titles of officers, resulting in conflict coverage that was marked by a strong sense of patriotism. Censorship materialized in three main ways, military censorship, government censorship and self-censorship. Correspondents signed agreements that required them to submit all their material through military channels before it went to the Federal Government Office of Censorship. And self-censorship was introduced where a journalist purposely omitted information from their reporting, such as sensitive military information or in circumstances where censored information was withheld to improve civilian morale. Journalists embedded with the Allied units would simply inform the Allied forces where they wanted to go and the unit would make arrangements. Correspondents were rarely restricted from military operations and had access to jeeps with government-issued drivers to bring them to the front lines. And the next example of embedded journalism is the Vietnam War, 1955 to 1975. The Vietnam War was the first televised war bringing the military conflict inside the homes of American families. The military's ad hoc approach to journalistic access of the battlefront marked a turning point in conflict coverage by news agencies. The American government alongside the US military provided flexible means for reporters, giving them unprecedented access to both information and the front lines. Because they failed to anticipate the public backlash that ensued, the Pentagon was blindsided in their assumption that coverage of the Vietnam War would lead to the same patriotic fervor generated during World War II. And losing public support for the war created a domino effect which reinforced and compounded the overall loss experienced during the Vietnam War. However, former presidents Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon deployed the revisionist term 
the lost victory, arguing that it was the Vietnam syndrome, not military failure, that led to the loss of the war. In addition, it was the news media which undermined public support for the war, leaving Americans with little hope and will to continue in the war effort. Also, the viewpoint that the media was responsible for losing the war was equally held by the military. The accounts and images published were brutal, showing pictures of starving children, villages ablaze, images of napalm, mass murder and stories of military atrocities. The gruesome reports from the front line contradicted the Pentagon's narrative, eventually leading to a strong anti-war sentiment. And interestingly, the majority of the on-the-scene reporting from Vietnam was largely factual because correspondents reported with honesty the events that they had seen firsthand. Much of what they saw was truly horrific, reflecting the true nature of war. And it was this horror, not the reporting, that eventually influenced the American public. The Vietnam War was perhaps one of the least censored wars, or at least the closest to journalistic ideals of independence that had ever been reached before. However, it marked a critical turning point in the deterioration of civil military relations. And this low ebb was uppermost in the minds of US policymakers when deciding upon a new course of action in how the media should be handled. The next example of embedded journalism is the Iraq War, 2003 to 2011. The war in Iraq represented a marked change in conflict coverage and also a new era of war journalism. It was the first war broadcast on live television and the new campaign, which was given the name of Operation Iraqi Freedom, created the first large-scale embedding program, which offered the media the greatest access they had experienced in any war since Vietnam. Post 9-11, the news media held enormous sway over the American public with television news channels enjoying a new level of respectability. And the magnitude of the combat operation was accompanied by a huge amount of international interest and accordingly required a comprehensive media management approach. The first official embedding program gave journalists access to service members and operational combat missions. Under the American policy, embedded reporters would sign a formal policy agreement with their hosting institution, outlining that all interviews would be on the record and included a list of releasable and non-releasable information. As the theatre of war turned more violent, though, it was safer for news outlets to make use of the embedded programme. At the beginning of 2003, there were roughly 700 embedded journalists. However, by 2008, there were only around nine embedded reporters. And this was largely explained by waning public support, specifically regarding the absence of weapons of mass destruction, or WMD, in Iraq. And also that Saddam Hussein was found not to be directly linked to the 9-11 attacks. And much of the reporting on information about Iraq's WMDs were later found to be wildly inaccurate and in some cases even erroneous. So having looked at several examples of embedded journalism, this now leads us to ask how was the embedding system received by the parties involved? Well, from a military perspective, the American embedded system was a huge success. Journalists were kept under supervision and in close communication with military personnel and their coverage centered on troop movements and combat from an American perspective. 
Conflict coverage via embedded reporting undoubtedly provided an unprecedented level of access to journalists. Executive levels of government set the agenda for what the media reported, and the outcome of the embedded system was a successful PR strategy because the type of journalism generated by embedded reporters built credibility with the public and various international media outlets during the early stages of the war. The American military received more favorable coverage than they would have had there not been embedding. And it's also clear that the public witnessed visual images of war in real time, which they had never had an opportunity to see before. However, as mentioned earlier, the modern version of embedding programs required journalists to sign agreements on ground rules that contractually bound them to adhere to rules enforced by the military. Equally though, formal embedding programs were a big win for the news media when compared to previous conflict coverage. According to William Kennedy in his 1994 article, The Military and the Media, Why the Press Cannot Be Trusted to Cover a War. When it comes to the history of conflict reporting, it appears that whenever obstacles and barriers are presented to journalists, those who pay the price are the journalistic audiences. And I quote, in short, the military will control press coverage as it deems necessary or convenient by applying exceptions and restrictions. And the press will make no serious effort to overcome that by changing its ways. The loser on all accounts is the public, end quote. And so in the following section, I will provide an evaluation of modern embedded journalism programs. And this will be done by reviewing several common influences from the news media environment, which eventually permeate into the type of journalism generated. Consequently, this determines whether or not the embedding programs have impacted the independence of journalists based on their increased contact with senior military commanders. So let's start with the issue of bias. Historically, media bias is an intrinsic feature of conflict coverage because mass media and governments have always directed a great deal of propaganda towards the war effort. Moreover, the news media underwent a process of restructuring following a period of intense commercialization during the 19th century. This process involved a major change from the dissemination of opinion by an editor for political purposes to the dissemination of information by a large news organization for profit. The news media evolved to the point where the press no longer saw itself as a servant of special interest groups or indeed individuals and their political aspirations. Unfortunately, though, in the pursuit of larger audiences and a desire to meet circulation and advertising targets, the speed at which news was disseminated came at the expense of accuracy and partiality. As such, several media biases exist in the contemporary news environment and to explore this further, I should be relying on the seminal work of Pamela Shoemaker and Stephen Rees from their 1996 book, Mediating the Message, Theories of Influences on Mass Media Content. And this provides a comprehensive account of the main factors which influence media content decisions. Their hierarchy of influences model uses five nested levels. The individual, media routines, organizational influence, the extra media dimension and the ideological or social system. And when compared to the propaganda model, the hierarchy of influences model draws attention to a broad range of pressures on news content. 
This model is hierarchical in that the five layers of influences identified range from the micro level to the macro level. So let's look at the first level. This comprises the media workers themselves. Their professionally related roles and ethics appear to have a direct influence on content. Whereas their socio-demographic backgrounds and their personal and political beliefs also shape news indirectly, especially in situations where individuals can bypass institutional pressures or organizational routines. The second level of influence consists of daily work routines within the newsroom itself. For instance, by converting information from journalistic sources and delivering it to audiences and advertisers, this results in standardized and recurring patterns of content. Therefore, any routine which alters this structure, such as embedded journalism, also alters the independence and accuracy of their journalistic work. The third level of influence refers to the commercial goals of media organizations, specifically the profit orientation shared by private media companies combined with their hierarchical structure. These are the main drivers which shape content in accordance with media ownership interests. The fourth level comprises extra media influences, and this includes journalistic sources, advertisers, or the political power of governments, market structures, and also technology. The fifth level is the influence of ideology. This refers to a system of values and beliefs that governs what audiences, journalists and other participants in the news media system deem necessary to maintain the prevailing power structures. And ideology is a noteworthy point because it not only shapes news but is carried forward and manifested in the final media content. The hierarchy of influences model is mainly a problem-solving tool rather than a specific theory and is useful in probing complex research questions. But when we examine the model more closely, at the micro level, the concepts employed help to reinforce the inherent biases present in war journalism. To explain this, let's look at six examples of how journalistic influence impacts news production. Example one, the personal values and beliefs of journalists, such as social liberalism or respect for human rights, may lend themselves towards a distrust of military power or sympathy for moderate dissenters and even a tendency to vote for liberal politicians or parties. Example two, certain aspects of their social background may lead in the same direction. For instance, journalists tend to be more secular with an urban outlook and are more educated compared to the national population. Example three, journalists are themselves citizens of particular states and members of national cultures, and they too are not immune to the biases of nationalism in covering international conflict. Example four, journalistic standards favor the ethos of objectivity, albeit more strongly in certain countries and news organizations than others. But this ethos correlates all too readily with key characteristics of war journalism. Example five, the convention of covering both sides of a conflict situation also creates opening for anti-war sentiment. And historically, as in the case of the Vietnam War, when a war policy creates dissension among elites, this clearly affects the course of journalistic production. Example six, by the same token, the same convention of covering two sides of a conflict situation reduces its complexity and excludes a diverse range of viewpoints and stakeholders. 
Indeed, the two sides of the argument approach is a prime example where media organizational routines and structures lend themselves all too easily to the allure of war journalism. And as I will elaborate upon shortly, news producers employ a host of factors when selecting and framing the news. This is achieved using professional news values which link news judgment to audience viewpoints and considerations. The end goal is to aim for audience building to create a human interest perspective or sympathy story in relation to conflict zones. And according to a journal article entitled What is News by authors Tony Harkup and Deirdre O'Neill in 2001, there are 10 such criteria which guide these news values. They are the influential power elites, celebrity, entertainment value, surprise, good news, bad news, the magnitude of the story, relevance to the audience, follow-up, and the news organization's own agenda. Generally speaking, one can infer from this list that war and governments are more newsworthy than the pursuit of peace processes. In addition to audience considerations, the pressures of meeting deadlines encourage newsmakers to stick to simple storylines and familiar stereotypes and to favor immediate events like battles over long-term processes like peace building, which are all key features of war journalism. Similarly, by referencing the fourth level of the hierarchy of influences model, which focuses on extra media, institutions and processes, audiences can also be considered as an influence on news frames. For instance, audiences may sometimes reject wartime news, but may enjoy the drama provided by ethnocentric narratives. Equally, they may share a patriotic and morbid fascination with the spectacle of violence and the grand display of military prowess, particularly on television. Technology from the internet is another major influence on the practices and agendas of journalism and of communication in conflict situations because it has facilitated the expansion of new forums as well as new platforms of online journalism. The hierarchy of influences model also helps us understand that news bias occurs because a journalist implicitly adopts an objective stance but they deliberately choose to take a certain point of view. And in the 21st century news format, neutrality plays a less significant role than the importance of questioning one's own stance from the outset. And in making these choices, a journalist automatically exposes themselves to personal biases. On a broader level, many of the embedded journalists who participated in the coverage of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were fully aware of the limitations and restricted scope of embedded reporting. And that's because where reporters are given more access to military cooperation, their movements are more restricted than a unilateral reporter. Correspondents dependent on soldiers for basic issues such as welfare and safety may be more vulnerable to emotional bonding, thus compromising their judgment and objectivity. And it's here that the criticism of embedded journalism becomes firmly rooted. Essentially, the scope of embedded reporting is narrowed and often accused of being one-sided because it is limited to government and military matters. By virtue of the bonds formed in such intense environments, the relationship that an embedded reporter might have with the soldiers certainly calls a reporter's objectivity into question. So let's now turn our attention to the second area of influence which permeates news journalism, which is the divide between traditional and pragmatic objectivity. 
The term pragmatic objectivity is a reference to the work of media ethics author Stephen J. Ward, who believes journalists are a special type of social advocate that pursue a particular form of objective engagement, which Ward calls pragmatic objectivity. The question of a war correspondence objectivity is the biggest criticism of the type of journalism created by the practice of embedded reporting. And interestingly, under the standards of modern journalism, being impartial or neutral using the traditional definition of objectivity is not a core principle of journalism. This immediately raises the question as to why modern conflict reporting is held to outdated standards of traditional objectivity, a standard that modern journalism does not hold to. When the concept originally evolved, it was not meant to imply that journalists were completely free of bias, quite the opposite. The term began to appear as part of the system of journalism during the 1920s, primarily out of a growing recognition that journalists were indeed full of bias, often unconsciously. Objectivity called for journalists to develop a consistent method to test and verify information, precisely so that personal and cultural biases would not undermine the accuracy of their work. It was the earliest approach to achieve a form of transparency. And so in the modern context, the requirement of objectivity is seen merely as a moral ideal. In other words, a guideline for professional norms or a set of practices that define and safeguard the routines of news writing. The main characteristics of objectivity are impartiality and non-bias, balance and fairness, and factual accuracy. Therefore, modern journalism aims for pragmatic objectivity where a reporter takes an objective stance but does not aim for a position of pure neutrality. Therefore, while objectivity in the classical sense is unobtainable, this also implies that the practice of journalism is not strictly one of stenography, i.e. to simply record facts in shorthand. Otherwise, this would mean relying on the ability of facts to speak for themselves, leaving the audience to arrive at their own conclusions. Instead, it requires executive decision-making about what to include in a story and how it should be done. This implies that traditional objectivity is based on a naive sense of realism by assuming that an observer passively consumes the facts of the world around them, knowing full well that knowledge and inquiry are actually based on interpretation. So this argument of pragmatic objectivity over traditional objectivity eliminates the dilemma that reporters have to disguise their personal bias and interpretations. Indeed, the model of traditional objectivity has been in decline since the late 19th century and more so after World War I, making way for a narrower definition of objectivity. This is because facts could not be relied upon during this period, especially because of the carnage of World War I, the relative success of wartime propaganda, the rise of totalitarian regimes and the Great Depression of the 1930s. In addition, the upheavals of the 1960s popular culture and the credibility gap between the American government and its public resulting from the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal paved the way for a more critical mode of journalism. This allowed reporters to focus more attention on news analysis rather than fact verification, while also creating the conditions for a more adversarial type of journalism. So overall, a complex set of factors have created the journalistic regime of objectivity, which inevitably 
led to political or ideological consequences. Consider, for instance, one of the hallmarks of objective reporting, which is the use of appropriate sources to provide credible, relevant and authoritative facts. Interestingly, the sources which fit this criteria most accurately are invariably representatives of powerful institutions. However, the pragmatic model of objectivity becomes a thorny issue for war reporting because agents operating in a manipulative public sphere are liable to distort events. And this explains why the practice of embedded journalism have faced so much scrutiny regarding the objectivity of the reporter. While official North American embedding programs did not start until the early 21st century, journalists had already maintained a long connection with military units, albeit on a less formal agreement. From the viewpoint of traditional objectivity, the practice of embedded journalism is flawed for three main reasons. Firstly, because of naive realism, where a reporter is expected to essentially stenograph the world around them passively. Secondly, because of rapid commercialization of the press, choices are made with profit consideration, rendering the entire practice of objectivity problematic. And thirdly, an embedded reporter under the norms of traditional objectivity subverts their role of holding power to account. And so to the third area of influence which permeates news journalism, which is framing. Now, framing theory is considered to be one of the most important theories in mass communication due to its ease of application and the modalities employed to interpret public discourse. In particular, the way in which a journalist chooses to package a story during embedded conflict coverage. Framing is a key tool used by the media to provide audiences with the necessary context and cues to evaluate issues under consideration. It is thought to be a vital bridging concept in the cultural cognitive process. Robert Entman, in his 1993 article, Framing, toward clarification of a fractured paradigm uses the following definition, quote, to frame is to select some aspects of a perceived reality and make them more salient in a communicating text in such a way as to promote a particular problem, definition, causal interpretation, moral evaluation and or treatment recommendation for the item prescribed, end quote. Now, Entman suggests that frames are used to promote a particular issue or enhance information when recommending the causes of a problem. Framing exists in two main forms. Firstly, episodic framing uses specific events or stories as frames to orient the audience to what the author believes is important to know about a particular topic or issue. And secondly, there is thematic framing, which applies a wide-angle lens to the coverage of a crisis or issue by stating systematic details such as causes, impacts and consequences, and it focuses on trends over time. The media will often present conflicts primarily as a competitive win-lose process in which an idealised positive self defeats the demonised negative other. Researchers have observed that journalists are trained to construct news within a story or narrative form based on their existing belief systems and by promoting the presence or absence of certain keywords. Often this is manifested as an antagonist facing off against a protagonist engaged in a tense or dramatic plot with a beginning, middle and end. 
This type of framing shapes news in a predictable way that exploits the expectations and cultural values of the audience. Dominant cultural narratives reinforce the idea of a just war against evil enemies and encourages opponents to maximize their advantages in order to create sympathy from viewing audiences. Media representations of conflict as a clear-cut, zero-sum game, constructive view of government concessions, for example, as weakness or failure, which leads to further provocative demands from the media. In addition, journalism provides a structural function in daily economic and cultural relations of society. And given that journalism is essentially a competitive business, the pursuit of profit pushes and reinforces the media's event-driven, drama-seeking and conflict-oriented reporting. In other words, journalists have a product or a story which needs to be sold. And quite simply, violence re represents good business because conflict and war provide spectacle and a perpetual sense of drama. In contrast, the passive and complex world of peace matters such as negotiations and trade treaties fail to attract attention within a business where its norms and practices favor coverage of violence and agitation rather than moderate opinions that evolve slowly through time. By contemplating framing biases, journalists and editors must question their objective stance. Framing is central in the democratic process because it has the potential to shape public opinion. And so let's wrap up with some concluding remarks. War journalism, as characterized by the practice of embedded reporting within national military units, is a trend which is expected to last for two main reasons. Firstly, the news industry is primarily revenue-oriented and war coverage is a lucrative source of advertising revenue. Secondly, the practice of embedded reporting has given journalists an unprecedented access to the front line of conflict and has been by far the safest method to do so. However, while embedded reporting serves the need of the media, it nevertheless remains subordinate to the military. In addition, a point that is rarely documented is how the audience perceives the journalism produced by embedded reporters. How can we evaluate whether the public is benefiting from war journalism through the practice of embedded reporting? And so this leads to a classic principal agent problem because through the system of embedding, a reporter inadvertently becomes an agent of the military subject to its rules. The asymmetric information sharing and differing interests that exist between the two entities cause both the principal, i.e. the military, and the agent, i.e. the embedded reporter, to behave contrary to their mutual benefactors, the public. The military's primary objective is operational success, while the press focuses on providing the information that participants require. When assessing the effectiveness of different methods of covering armed conflict, more attention should be devoted to the needs and reactions of journalistic audiences. But in either case, those who lose out are the news media consumers. But there is also a strong willingness by the military to maintain an embedded program because of the potential for garnering public support. By the same token, embedded journalism offers a democratic value to audiences because they rely on it for a certain standard of truth. Equally though, as mentioned earlier, very few news consumers are aware that journalists covering a conflict are actually being fed, housed, transported and kept safe by a military institution the same one that they are expected to report on. 
This inevitably raises uncomfortable questions about integrity and objectivity of news journalism, thereby challenging the media's independent standing in society. Furthermore, the media's strong link to elites can also be its own enemy. Journalists are not only producers of news stories, but they too are often being produced or manipulated, both in democratic and non-democratic countries. Again, this reinforces the need for a greater consideration towards the requirements of the news audience. And at this juncture, it's a good opportunity to point out that not all news media is bad. On the contrary, in democracies with a free press, the media is expected to work for transparency and open processes. News editorials and commentaries provide insight into complex issues. They encourage and facilitate public debate and historically were always designed to hold power to account. Furthermore, there is a dire need for high quality investigative news organizations now more than ever in a complex and interconnected world to address the challenges of fake news and disinformation which have taken hold of various social media platforms that many individuals have come to rely on as their main source of information. Furthermore, in a controversial critique of television journalism written in 1998 entitled On Television, author Pierre Bourdieu was not specifically concerned with the issues of war, but with the impact of the journalistic industry on democracy. However, his analysis has clear implications for war journalism. For Bourdieu, TV journalism has developed a number of destructive characteristics. It favours entertainment over real information, confrontation over reasoned arguments. TV news has created a new category of journalist pseudo-intellectuals who promote cynicism and oversimplified viewpoints. Worse still, it stimulates xenophobic fears and the primal passions of nationalism. At their root, Bourdieu points the subordination of journalism to market forces through the mechanism of audience ratings and the rabid competition for scoops and exclusives. Finally, when we juxtapose Bourdieu's analysis to the issues surrounding war journalism, we note that corporate and mainstream media continue to perform very poorly when it comes to war reporting. Conflicts are simplified beyond recognition. Western journalists and the media organizations they represent continuously fail to maintain sufficient critical distance from those who actively promote war, whether they are governments, pro-humanitarian interventionists, NGOs or corporate entities that are active within war zones. And finally, given the long history of war operations instigated by Western governments and their allies during the post 9-11 years, which led to the killing and injuring of millions of people, the question which comes to mind focuses on a point of ethics. To what extent have various media organizations been complicit in these well-documented failings? And should they also be held to account for these crimes as embedded partners in the business of war reporting? In 1928, the British historian Arthur Ponsonby famously stated, when war is declared, truth is the first casualty. Did this first casualty fall by the wayside to the cries of journalistic exuberance, or was it the revelry created by the dogs of war? And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time 
on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon. 